0: Welcome to the faculty podcast of Reformed Theological Seminary here in the Washington, D.C. area, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. And we're joined this morning by Ms. Jennifer Patterson, director of the Institute of Theology and Public Life and instructor here at RTS Washington. Hey, Jennifer.
1: Great to be
0: with you. Thank you. Great to have you. Also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament here at RTS Washington. Hey, Tommy. Hey, great to be here. Great to have you. Hey, and also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area, and instructor in New Testament. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Also joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto, our man in Jakarta and professor of systematic theology here at RTS Washington. Hey, Gray.
2: Thanks, Scott. Excited to be here. Great to
0: have you. And also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament. Hey, Peter.
2: Hey, Scott. Good to be with you.
0: Now we have a special guest today. We're going to be talking to Nancy Guthrie, but I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Tommy Keene to get this conversation started.
3: Yeah, thanks, Scott. I mean, as you as you mentioned, we've got Nancy Guthrie here. Uh, for those of you who might not know who she is, Nancy is a Bible teacher, an author, international conference speaker, um, focusing on biblical theology, teaching people how to read the Bible as a whole, as a unity about Jesus Christ. She's author of several books, uh, Saints and Scoundrels and the Story of Jesus, Even Better Than Eden, which I hope to talk about a little bit today holding on to hope, and most recently, uh, God does His best work with Empty, um, a portion of which will likely be published in RTS's own Reformed Faith and Practice uh, journal, along with an interview with Nancy. We're excited uh, about that, and I thought we could actually start there. Nancy, as I was kind of reading through the book and and thinking about your work, you know, one of the kind of themes that keeps coming up is the importance of biblical theology for how we think about the Bible, and particularly how we think about various themes in the Bible. I was wondering if you could give us just a brief overview of your work, kind of what makes you tick, and specifically, you know, God does his best work with empty. I'd love to hear kind of how you came up with that idea and the themes in that book, uh, etc.,
4: well, thank you so much. And let me just say, first of all, how honored I am to get to be with all of you this morning. I'm, I'm looking at your faces on our Zoom call. I'm thinking this is a very expensive hour, uh, and so I better make the most of it. Um, I have become a lover of biblical theology. I, I suppose that begins with being a lover of the Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm someone who grew up in church. My earliest memories are, I can remember my three-year-old Sunday school class, right? Um, and so, you know, I remember being in church, and I, I was the kid in church. First of all, I was always there, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, you know, everything. I graduated from high school. I went to a Christian college, minored in Bible. I got a job in Christian publishing right out of college, and so I was working with Christian communicators who were writing all kinds of practical Christian living, mostly, and uh, I got very involved in Bible study fellowship in my you know 30s and so you know I'm someone who has been immersed in the bible my whole life but i would have to say it wasn't until maybe 15 years ago that i began to listen to more teachers who taught the bible with a sense of redemptive history mm-hmm. that no matter where they were in the bible their message centered on the person and work of christ It always got to him, to his life, death, and resurrection. And because it was so centered on who Christ is and what he's done, it meant it wasn't necessarily all about me and what I'm supposed to do, right? Because it's about what he has done. And as I began to hear that kind of teaching, I just began to think, I'm not sure I understand the Bible at all. (laughs) Certainly, I don't know how to read the Old Testament, because the Old Testament especially what in my mind was mostly about stories that presented characters uh, that I was tr- supposed to figure out, either I was supposed to try real hard to be like them in this way or try real hard not to be like them if they're presented in a way that doesn't seem positive. And that also meant, I just pretty much ig- ignored the prophets, right? Mm-hmm. Because I-, I couldn't understand in my modern Western mind how the prophetical books fit in any kind of storyline and so they were just kind of hanging around in space somewhere and maybe i might look at them to try to find some really hopeful piece that i could try to claim as my own but in terms of understanding what the prophets were saying to their original audience and then what the person of work of christ means to that and then drawing a kind of application to myself i had no ability to do so just as i began to hear the bible taught this way i just began to say okay I think I need to basically go back to kindergarten in how to understand the Bible. And fortunately, I published with a a number of different publishers, and one of them is Tyndale, and they have this line of one-year devotionals. And so I said, can I write the one-year Bible of discovering Jesus in the Old Testament? And so that gave me a year, basically, to begin to reorient how I read the Bible. And so... I immersed myself. This makes me glad for living in the era of the internet where I could listen to audio sermons of uh, people who teach the Bible with biblical theology and redemptive history. And so I began to listen to them and read some of these writers. And then I always think that the only way you really learn something is if you're giving it back out to someone else. That as you listen to it, if you're thinking, I've got to explain this to someone else, that you get it in a sense a lot more than you would otherwise. And so as I was not only, you know, reading it and listening to it, but then trying to give it out to someone else um, that began to reorient myself.
3: Is that kind of how the podcast uh, developed? You know, that I think you went through each book in the Bible. Yeah. Uh,
4: it, it came a little bit later. Uh, I wrote a series of Bible studies called the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Bible Study series, uh, uh, five Bible studies working my way through the whole of the Old Testament. And so I call them my going to elementary school on uh, understanding Christ throughout all of the scriptures. And so I continued to get exposed to more and more biblical theologians during that time. And yeah, when I started the podcast, I guess, in about two thousand. 14 just as I was I would get to interact with a lot of biblical theologians and I felt like okay I need these things to retrain my instincts not only about how I understand the bible but how I teach the bible and so then I launched yeah the the help me teach the bible podcast I had a number of aims with that my, my biggest aim was I just wanted to encourage lay bible teachers that they don't always have to use someone else's materials, but that they could open up a book of the Bible and expect that God would meet them and they could study it and that they could just teach it. And my second big aim was that I wanted to introduce them to what I would call better mentors. And for me, mostly that meant mentors who teach the Bible with a sense of biblical theology. And I suppose that's a big deal to me just because it's it's not the way I grew up, and it's, it's not how my instincts have worked most of my life. And fortunately, those are changing uh, with time. But I think, I think there are a lot of people like me who call the theology is very new, and they need help, especially figuring out how to get to Christ in the text and present the gospel from the text wherever they are.
0: I remember hearing you, I think for the first time, teach, Nancy, at my church, uh, this is fourth president in Bethesda, maybe six years ago or so. It was on a weekend conference, and there were a, a bunch of biblical teachers there, and it was, it was kind of an illustrious group. And I remember sitting in the back of the room as you got up to give your talk, and I don't remember exactly what the topic was. But what I remember is how you, you particularly were focusing on the law and sort of a biblical theology of the law in a way and i remember listening to it and thinking wow you know, she <laughs> she gets this in a way that's that you don't often hear she you, you, there's a there's a kind of biblical theology 101 where every passage points you not merely to christ but to um, you know maybe substitutionary atonement or something along those lines and yet you presented this kind of I think, very sophisticated, nuanced understanding of what God requires of us and how we understand that in light of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really beautiful and impressive teaching. And I was thrilled to see later that you were at RTS <laughs> taking classes. And I thought, okay, maybe that's why, You know, maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. I like the way she's talking so much. But I wanna ask, so what are some of those resources? You talked about people who are, preaching and teaching in a biblical theological mode and how people can not only glean from them, but also learn how to do it themselves, I guess. I love that. I love that the way that you said that they don't just have to read other people, but they can learn how to do this themselves. Mm -hmm. What are some of the resources that you found most Mm -hmm. helpful in your preparing and training for this?
4: Well, I'm probably like everybody, you know, you have certain people who are helpful to you at one time and it changes
0: (laughs) Mm-hmm.
4: Are you guys like that? All right. So, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. initially, I mean, when and I'm sure you guys can relate to this. You heard Tim Keller give his message, you know, and talk about the better Abel, right? And the better Jonah and, you know, the better Moses and all of that. And mind officially blown, right? <laughs> and and um, so, you know, to hear Tim Keller do that uh, was significant to me. I remember early on listening to Sinclair Ferguson and writing him a letter. Mm. Um, <laughs> Um, I find a lot of biblical theologians come out of the UK or Australia. So my husband used to walk by my computer and ask me if I had a thing for men with accents because I always (laughs) seem to be listening to biblical theologians from those places. But, you know, um, I've learned a lot from people like Graham Goldsworthy and John Woodhouse. Um, I think we have some excellent biblical theologians from Scotland, people like Mm -hmm. Alistair Begg and Colin Smith, and Liam Gallagher, and, and Sinclair, right? So um, here's how I started that whole endeavor. I went out, I bought three books. I bought Ed Clowney's The Unfolding Mystery, mm-hmm. which is a very readable book for people to start with, right? I got Christopher Wright's um, Knowing Christ Through the Old Testament. And then one other I won't mention because it wasn't that helpful. <laughs> and uh, then probably my next big breakthrough came when I got Graham Goldsworthy's trilogy, the Goldsworthy yeah. trilogy, and read Gospel and Kingdom. And, you know, he, there at the beginning, he talks about how the story of the Bible, no matter where you are in the Bible, is the story of God's people in God's place under God's rule.
0: Yeah, you know, I remember reading Goldsworthy, this is kind of years after being introduced to biblical theology and thinking, why haven't I read yeah. him before? It was so, so helpful.
1: Nancy, your ministry has not only been direct teaching, but as we've already mentioned, really a focus on equipping. And you've launched this Biblical Theology Workshop for Women, um, we are pleased to be hosting you through uh, RTS Washington uh, next fall, November 5th and 6th, 2021. It was supposed to be this past weekend, actually, and due to COVID, we had to uh, postpone that. So it's nice to have you here with us as a consolation prize this morning. But- yeah,
4: my husband on Friday, he opened up his calendar, he still had on his calendar that we would be in Washington. He was like, oh, we're supposed to be in Washington today. I was like,
1: oh, don't even tell me that. <laughs> we're all sad about that. Yeah. Um, But very nice to be seeing you this way uh, today. And I just, could you talk a little bit, that's been a really major focus for you and is going to occupy quite a bit of your time next year. You're clearly passionate about it. Can you talk about why that's been an important venture for you?
4: Yes. I think one thing I've discovered, I mean, Scott was talking about me, you know, teaching where he saw me teach a number of years ago. What I've discovered is that when you present biblical theology to people who love the bible and love Christ there's something that happens i i almost have no words for it there is a a joy an explosion of joy like now i can finally put the bible together in a way that makes sense and the the beauty of seeing Christ from all of these different angles that biblical theology, especially looking at various themes in the Bible, the experience of getting to see the, the person and work of Christ, it melts our hearts and it fills us with joy. So I... I to, I've been going around the country and I've got some international ones scheduled to do these three session workshops for women, this biblical theology workshop for women. And uh, so I'm trying to make it to where everyone who comes can just take a little bit of a step forward. I know it can be challenging to try to hit every level, but I am trying to hit that level of that woman in the pew. And she's someone, she's, she's done some Bible study and she loves Christ and she loves the Bible But, you know, similar to me a number of years ago, she just has not been introduced to biblical theology. And so as I present just the idea, just first of all, I tell the story of the Bible from beginning to end in about 20 to 25 minutes. It's been interesting to me how many of women have come up to me afterwards and said to me, that was worth coming. Just that they're not, they've never heard it put together in that way. And so I love that. And then I take one theme and in my workshops, I take the thing of king and kingdom. And I do the same thing, but I tell the story of the Bible according to that particular theme of king and kingdom. Then in the next session, I introduce the idea of the themes that are in the Bible. In fact, this is probably a good group to ask this question because sometimes I get asked the question in the Q&A, like how many biblical themes are there in the Bible? Or, you know, where's the definitive list of the themes in the Bible? So my answer is always, there's no definitive list. Uh, I I put together a list of 20, but I bet everyone on this call, you know, our lists would be different, right? Of what we think the major themes are in the Bible. But I just introduced the idea that there is one divine author of this book many human authors, one divine author, and the message he wants to get across. And any book we read, if we know the themes that that author has written into their book, we're more likely to get their message right. And we're more likely to to keep from Uh, misunderstanding it, missing the message, making it into a message it isn't really. And so uh, I introduce these biblical themes, and I trace, I take one theme and trace it through every part of the Bible, through the, the major redemptive historical events, creation, fall, cross, resurrection, Pentecost ascension, consummation, and then every part of the Bible, Pentateuch, history books and so and i just you know draw out and my point is i'm looking for a passage or two in which the theme develops doesn't just mention the theme it's that if you're telling the story of the bible according to theme it takes a story the crisis that's pretty much always there at the fall in the story uh it, it develops and we get to the climax and the climax is always the same place it's always in the death and resurrection and uh, the Pentecost and Ascension of Jesus Christ, and then it resolves into the consummation, which the consummation part, I find for most of evangelical Christianity, that is the huge missing piece. At the workshops, one thing I talk about in terms of one of the most important impacts that understanding biblical theology has on us is that it helps us understand the Christian life, uh, because we, we now see our life in terms of this story, how we fit into this story, what God is doing, because most of us, and, and I would be included in this, you know, I grew up understanding the, the Christian life is I make a decision for Jesus and then I try really hard to live and then I go to heaven when I die. Mm. And it's not that though, any of those things are necessarily untruths, It's just very diminished, because it's totally separated from the larger story of what God is doing in the world. So, it completely misses consummation, right? So we do that and then I go to I go to the gospels and I just dip into the gospels because I'm trying to demonstrate how a basic understanding of these biblical themes then serves us no matter where we go in the Bible as we see those themes arise wherever they are, it, it guides us in helping to, us to understand it rightly. So I just love doing that. It's so fun. You just, you know, you just see the light bulbs going off and the women tell me afterwards their minds are spinning and their hearts are burning uh, because they've seen Jesus in this fresh way because they've just always dipped into little places to find a little bit of inspiration, right? And, and they haven't had a sense of how it fits together. So when it came to the part where they were supposed to try to trace a theme and come up with verses for a particular theme, they realized, I don't know where stuff is in the Bible. And I kind of feel like if that's the main thing you learn at the workshop and it motivates you to try to get to know your Bible better, that that's good. But um, for most women, they just find a new passion and I try to encourage them to approach their Bibles with a new sense of curiosity for learning rather than just checking off a Bible reading or looking for a little inspiration for the day.
3: I, I really like how, how you put that. And on your website, you say, you know, one of the things that you're trying to do, your mission is to infiltrate women's Bible study with biblical theology. And I, lo- I love that word, infiltrate. I thought, huh. That's an interesting word, but that—that's how it feels at times. I, I know for me, there's this moment. I teach hermeneutics here, and there's this moment in hermeneutics where I see a couple of the students, and I know exactly when it's going to be. But a couple of their their brains kind of pop a little bit, or their—you know—as you put it, their their eyes eyes go bright, and it's this. Usually, the students that haven't had Dr. Red or Dr. Lee yet, but they 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 kind of get it all of a sudden, and. And I can see their, their wheels turning because the next question that they ask, and it comes up every year, the next question that they ask is not how do I learn the Bible better, but rather how do I get others to learn the Bible better? Because I can spot that this isn't happening in our Sunday schools and this isn't what's going on and with the flannel graph uh, you, you know, at, at, in third grade and, and this isn't how Bible studies are working right now. How do I get my Bible study leaders to start doing this? Now, I think you've answered kind of like, how do I start doing this? But then, you know, that next leap, how do we help people to think this way and to start, like like you mentioned, the layperson doing this on a regular basis, not only in their own devotional life, but in Bible study prep, Sunday school prep, et cetera?
4: Yeah. Well... First of all, all of us, first, if, if a woman came to me and said, okay, I want to begin teaching with more of a sense of biblical theology, what should I do? Uh, I would say to her, first of all, make sure you're, you're listening to people who do it well. I think that has been my greatest influence. You know, there are books, and I love books that kind of break down how to do biblical theology. In fact, there's a brand new book coming out I think it's Kriegel, 40 Questions About Biblical Theology. It's a really helpful book and concise explanations of, in many ways, how to do it and some demonstrations of how to do it. But I think the best thing is listen to people who do it well and listen actively. And the main thing that your listening is for is for what they do and what they don't do. And it always hinges on how they get to Christ, though, Right. And how they present the gospel. I mean, week to week at my church, I am so blessed to have a an RTS graduate pastor, Nate Sheridan, who's working on his doctorate right now from RTS too. And, you know, he's an excellent biblical theologian. And I know I, I come into church and I look at the I look at the bulletin, and sometimes I'll read the passage. And I can't immediately, I think, how is he going to get to Christ with this? I I can't figure out just, you know, having not really worked in the text, how I would do it. He does it. (laughs) And I'm so excited. So I'm blessed week by week to get to listen to that. Some people aren't. And so they've got to seek out listening to some people who do it well. I think if you're, if you're trying to learn to teach this way, that, um, you could do use in some ways the tool that I use at the workshop, where I have these themes, and they've got to find them in every part of the Bible. So I would say to a teacher, let's let's say you're teaching on the passage that my pastor was preaching on yesterday, on uh, Mark chapter one, on the two lepers. The leper came to Jesus and said, "I know you can make me, you know, I know you can make me clean if you're willing." make me clean. And then Jesus reaches out and says, I'm willing, be clean. Now we know how that's misused, right? Here's how you get your miracle from Jesus. That's how that passage gets used if you don't have a sense of biblical theology. But if you look at that and you go, okay, I think I need to see this in light of the whole Bible's story about clean and unclean. So you know, where does that begin? Okay, it begins in the garden where they're clean, right? Then something unclean enters the garden, but it really gets going in Leviticus and I've got all these rules of clean and unclean. What's that about? And honestly, that's going to take you a lot of work, but you're going to come to see that everything that's unclean is related to the impact of the curse. And then you're going to think through what it was like for those people in the Old Testament to live under these laws of clean and unclean every day, everything they did. And then when you read that Jesus is going to reach out and touch her, you're going to think, wait a minute, Jesus is a Jewish person. He can't touch someone with leprosy. And you're beginning to see, okay, here's a picture of this great exchange. is going to take her uncleanness upon himself, and he's going to give to her his cleanness. And you think, how is this going to come to its climax in the cross and resurrection and you realize on the cross Jesus is going to become the ultimate unclean thing he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God he's going to take my uncleanness upon himself and then we end with the consummation where we enter into this place it's been we will have been purified not just made clean but made holy so we can enter into his holy presence we're going to live in this place where nothing unclean will ever enter so you get the sense of the whole story and then you come back to your passage. How does all of that impact how I'm gonna teach this passage? I'm not sure if that answered your question, Thomas. But.
3: No, it's, it's really helpful. I, I, I never have a good answer, which is why I asked okay. you. Um, and, and I think that's really helpful that part of it is, is you modeling it for others and watching others model it for you. Um, and it may, may take five years for people to start to pick up on what you're
4: doing. A lot longer than that, I think, right? And I always feel like at my workshops, some women are so discouraged because they, they come to a point where they think, "Wow, I've got so far to go to reorient myself." And I can re- I can remember being in Bible study fellowship, you know, in my thirties, and looking around, and there were women who like seemed to know where stuff is in the Bible, or a, a book of the Bible would be mentioned, and they knew they could like tell you what that book was about. And at that point in my life, I just didn't know the Bible like that at all. And I thought to myself, it's going to take like a lifetime to know the Bible like that.
3: I was trying to give people. And I say,
4: yes, it is. It's going to take a lifetime. And how wonderful is it that the Bible is the one book in the world that is worthy of spending a lifetime seeking to know and understand and apply
0: there's something too. I think there's something, it compounds, right? Because as you learn the story and you learn the themes, and by the way, I want to have a total, I want to have an audio appendix afterwards where we argue about how many themes there are <laughs> faculty. Um, we, we won't subject you to that, Nancy, <laughs> but, but the idea of like once you learn the themes and you kind of get the sense, this is finite. There's a normal, there's a finite number of things of threads that you can pull you can develop on that and learning develops at a, at a faster level. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why people have a hard time finding where things are in the Bible is because they don't have something that's connecting them all mm-hmm. together. And so once you start getting those tools, you know, the, the, uh, the curve goes up and increases exponentially, the more you kind of just get a grasp of the basics you know, But I think it is a, it's, a, it's a way, it's a mode of thinking. It's a, it's a pattern of thought that you have to be exercised in. And I think that's hearing it, and engaging with it over and over again. Great, you had a question.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, that was fantastic. I mean, I just, I was, as I was listening to you, it sounded like how you were treating the clean, unclean passage in Mark 1 was basically you took the theme from there and you traced it back to creation. So how the fall impacted that theme. And then you trace it all the way back to Jesus and what he was doing in redemption and putting it into the consummation, right? So it sounds like that was a method there involved, right? So my question is, how would you answer someone who's struggling with getting that method right? Would you immediately teach them, here's the step-by-step method? Where would you go to to get people to think about how this text points us to Jesus? So they're struggling, let's say, in the prophets, like you said, the prophets, you might seem, uh, Is a little bit difficult to tie into the, the broader storyline of the scriptures or whatever text in the Bible, right? And you're struggling. How do I get to Jesus? Would you tell them, well, pick out the theme, trace it to creation all the way to redemption and consummation? Or would you go through type and anti type? There's so many routes, right? right. So I'm guessing where would you go first and foremost as the most helpful way to get to Christ as a method?
4: Wow, that's a hard question, Gray. Come on now. <laughs> I'm just a lonely RTS global student. I don't know these things. Um, (laughs) I think any part of the Bible we go to, we've got a toolbox or or at least uh, over our training, we're trying to develop a toolbox, right? And so uh, we come to a text and we're going to pull out all of our different tools to try to hack away at it to get to meaning and um, we're, we're, we're trying to get to the original author's uh, intended meaning for his original hearers. And we're gonna look at its, um, its literary context, its biblical context, its historical context, and all of those things are gonna reveal some things to us. We're gonna try to maybe even write out a sentence of what that author's aim was of his message. We're gonna be looking for repeated words, um, as well as themes. So themes would be just one of the tools, I think we, we bring to that. Uh, we're gonna be looking at it even before we um, maybe even start working on our talk or our message to say, how am I going to get to the gospel here? And, and not in a stick it on way, but in an authentic way. You know what are some words or ideas or images in this text that create an authentic but unmistakably tied to this passage uniquely as a way to to get to christ and we do bring all of that to the text and you know depending on where we are and who we're talking to and how long we have uh, for our message, you know, those various tools are going to unearth some things in the text that help us to figure out what we're going to communicate.
5: Uh, hi, Nancy. This is uh, Peter Lee here. Hey, Peter. Uh, it's so great to have you. Um, I was, we were all so disappointed when the, uh, when COVID hit and we couldn't have you here for the conference. So this is just a small little taste to, uh, to know what we're going to get in the future. And it's terrific. By the way, I, I assume that once you finish your, uh, biblical theology workshop through the Bible, I'm assuming you're going to shift to uh, systematic theology at that point. Is that the next step? Is that effort? said like
4: a systematic theology professor?
5: Well, uh, my heart, you warm the cockles of my biblical theological heart. That's what I do. Do you have those? Living. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think I have them. And so
4: okay, good. The we need uh, both, don't we? We really we, need we, both.
5: We do need There's- both. We need both. We need. We do need both. Praise God. But uh, I guess there's. But a understanding
4: which- the differences. I feel like at these workshops, most women have been exposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had doctrine kind of class, so they they've been exposed to systematic theology. So I actually yep. talk about a little systematic theology just to compare and contrast them. Just to help people understand what biblical theology is and kind of the differences yeah that
5: was totally my experience i went into seminary with this fairly good background of uh systematic doctrines it was uh you know i studied under uh, ed Clowney, and uh, uh hearing him and some of my other teachers is just it was like a copernican revolution and didn't even realize that you it sounded weird it sounded wrong initially but then it just became just fantastic you know studying with people like dr klein Uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Clowney, uh, and he so emphasized what you mentioned about that strong Christocentric element and how we can do that from biblical theology. One thing that I always struggled with when I was a a real pastor, that is, you know, and really kind of wrestling in the pews uh, was the question of uh, practicality. You know, biblical theology, because it's a narrative, ends up, um, I found it difficult to know, therefore, this is what you ought to do. Uh, because it's because there's a strong you know direction that takes us to Christ once you get to Jesus it's sort of it, you know that's it and so i was wondering uh, did you do you find that uh, a similar type of struggle and if so yeah. you know what where's the application dr Clowney used to say you know our application is just our identifying in our union with Christ which is terrific but i think some may take that as sort of a mm-hmm. A, an easy excuse to not talk about them, the Christian life. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, so, a cu- yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, I think especially women's Bible study is so oriented toward a practical application. Uh, what am I supposed to do? I've been doing a bunch of radio interviews over the last month or so for my new book, God Does His Best Work with Empty. And let me tell you, Christian radio wants you to get practical, you know, and tell me what I am supposed to do. So I, I want to say, first of all, I think <clears throat> that there is nothing more practical than what you see in the scriptures would cause you to adore Christ. I think most of the world think that's not very practical, that, you, that you, it will cause you to love him more, adore him more. Uh, I think that's eminently practical because uh, my Christ is what uh, gives me power and desire for obedience and conformity to his character. And so I actually think that if, if, I, if I present Christ in a beautiful way and it causes the women I'm teaching to see his, I, I want them to see three things. I want them to see his beauty and his sufficiency and the necessity of being joined to him. I mean, that is the most urgent thing, right? And even after you've become joined to him, we still need to keep being reminded, I think, how urgent it is to be joined to Christ, that there is nowhere apart from him that we can enjoy his salvation benefits. It is urgent that we and others are joined to him. So, I think many people would label those things as not practical. I think they are absolutely practical. I really appreciate Bible teachers who are able to find the balance that I think you're talking about, Peter, that they get to Christ, to his death and resurrection, but then there are some real life things. I think one of the best examples of both a person who does this regularly and a sermon series that did this. I mentioned earlier, I love Colin Smith's preaching. Are you familiar with him in Arlington Heights, Illinois? And he has a podcast and radio ministry called Unlocking the Bible. I remember listening through, he he did a series of messages on Joseph. And everyone was titled, everyone was given a title that could apply to Joseph or Jesus. So just even from the titling, you saw that he was going to be presenting Christ. I think, you know, he was the beloved son, uh, the hated brother. Um, and so all of those times he did that. And yet with everyone, he did also talk about, you know, Joseph's response to temptation uh, and, and his fleeing temptation. And he 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 applied some of the, the wisdom of Joseph's actions to us as people living in the modern world. And so I think it can be done. And I think, I, I, I think what you're getting at, Peter, is, is that sometimes we who love biblical theology can be very slow to apply the Bible in morally, personally, spiritually challenging ways to say to a person here's what you ought to do based on what we've seen but I think as we become better biblical theologians we find a blend because I I think the the scriptures present to us a word in which we can do both.
5: Mm. I definitely appreciate that. I mean, uh, and I'm definitely with you on this. Uh, maybe it's just the maleness in me at times that kind of needs something to do, you know, a problem to fix and, and can't see the value in just the fact that, you know what, if I learned to, uh, to love Jesus more, that alone is, is beneficial and to just leave it at that. Um, and maybe it's just, um, my, my question for you guys, Nancy is, is, uh, Um, what can we do uh, to Mm. be more of an encouragement uh, women students to do kind of what you're doing, to, to learn, to love the word of God, to broaden their interest in scripture beyond just that. Mm.
4: Treat your women like they have minds for theology. Mm. Um, And not just minds for organizing and doing a little Bible study. And I don't mean to belittle that. (laughs) I love Bible study. Right. But, I think there's a slightly different nuance I'm talking about here, that, uh, that women, t- t- to encourage them that they have a mind for theology. So how does a do that? Well, how do you do that with the men in your church who love theology? You, you talk to them about books that you're reading. Have you read this book? Maybe you even ask them for a recommendation of a book. You know, what's a book you read lately it's really shaping how you're approaching the Bible. I'd like to see mm-hmm. that, yeah. right? Not, not see it to check it out, although it might be good that you do, um, but treat them like a theological colleague. Mm. And when I think about the excellent theologians and pastors in my world, in terms of how they've helped me, they have been available to me when I get stuck. Like I remember, um, Gray mentioned that you've been using there in Indonesia. My Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Bible Study Series, beginning with Genesis. You know, and I remember the the, the second one, God uh, getting to Deuteronomy. I knew I had to figure out what this circumcision of the heart was that's talked about in Deuteronomy. I guess I should have called you, Scott, right? You're my Deuteronomy guy, but I didn't know you then. Right, so, you know, what is this circumcision of the heart? And I knew I had, if I was going to get to the gospel, I had to figure out what was being talked about here. And, um, you know, so I can remember one um, guy who I went to repeatedly with questions like that, you know, and I could either over the phone or go sit in his office, just talk me through this. What is this here? now i also have to say i can remember a time many years before this this was before i was really understanding biblical theology i remember i was teaching women's bible study a class on romans and i got romans like 9 through 11 okay and i'm trying to figure out this and i can remember going to a pastor at that time and just saying okay so what does this mean does this mean that a lot of jewish people are going to turn to christ the end you know that kind of question from the text and I remember feeling so brushed off you know just kind of like yeah yeah maybe so and that but not engaging me Mm. to talk about it or offering a resource or two why don't you read here and here listen to who how this person handles this and give it some more thought and then let's talk about it I mean that's what I needed and instead I felt like now, you women don't need to worry your pretty little head over really figuring that out. That's mm. how I felt in that instance. Fortunately, that's been very rare for me. So I've had people who've been willing to talk it through with me. The greatest gift has been people who've, my pastors, who've opened up their library to me. Uh, a few Sundays ago, I remember um, I went into my pastor's office in between services, and he came in, and I was like bent down, pulling out a, a book from his bottom, the bottom shelf. He's like, oh, hello. And, but I know that it's open to me. For whatever I'm working on, and that, the, and we, the, and he sent me a book, late, you know, a few weeks ago. I want you to read this, and let's talk about that. That is one way to really encourage women to really think about the Bible.
0: Amen.
1: I loved what you said about this being a pursuit of the lifetime, and that really means that what. God brings to us in a lifetime is going to be a part of that ministry. And certainly then that's been borne out in in your own life. The the grief that you've experienced, that you have turned that to redeeming aspect of ministry, which is really wonderful. You've also been a lifelong learner yourself and pursued seminary. And I, I wanna ask you about what advice you, well, first of all, what you've found most important about your own seminary education, adding to the pursuit that you were already on. And secondly, uh, what advice you give to women about whether and when seminary might be beneficial to them.
4: Mm. Well, you know, I go back and forth on whether or not I wish I had done it earlier. Um, In some ways, you know, I'm 58 now. So um, some ways I wish I had started seminary with a 20 something year old mind. Um, You know, I've been afraid of languages because my mind just doesn't work that way. I'm not sure it would have worked that way as a 20 something mind just because of the way I am, my mind works. But in many ways, I wish I'd brought that enthusiasm and in other ways, Wow, I just think it's been, um, I, I, I know more about what I need to know, or why things matter in, in, in certain things I'm studying, be, lifetime you know, uh, being in and, and serving in the church. I, I know more about where the trouble spots are for people, both theologically and personally, where the questions are going to come up, so where I need to get more solid. So In some ways, I think it's fabulous that I am in my 50s and doing seminary. And one thing I I think about seminary is what I tell people a lot of times is for most of my classes at seminary, there have been so many that I would look at and I would say, okay, I have to take this class uh, because it's part of the required classes, but I don't really need this. It's not, it's not really what I need for, for what I'm going to be doing. And it's, Um, I I can tell you almost every time I get into the class and I was like, I didn't know enough to know that I needed to know this over and over and over again. So I I would say, don't look at a list of seminary classes and think, I don't need to know this because I really did need to know this. And I wish I'd known it earlier. Um, The other thing I would say is that the value of seminary classes to me um, has been the mixture of lecture and books. You know, different classes were different ways, but oftentimes the the books I had to read uh, have had bigger impact on me maybe even than just what was presented in class. And I'd like to think that maybe I would read those books apart from being required to read those books, but the fact that I'm required to read them and then maybe write something about them is helpful. Um, I love it that so many seminaries, including RTS, make so many classes, the audio of them available on i I mean, how generous. And there are lots of classes that I have listened to before actually taking them just because I wanted to learn the material. But I'd also say you just learn it a whole other way when you've got to interact with the professor about it and you've got to write a paper on it. And so a seminary has been incredible incredibly valuable to me it continues to be I've got a little ways to go and you know for me seminary is not I remember when I first told some of my family members who they always forget still I've been taking seminary classes for years now and they always seem to forget that I'm a seminary student which always makes it feel like they diminish it but anyway I'm I'm not bitter okay and uh, <laughs> but I remember when I first told uh, one of my family members I was going to take seminary courses they were like So what job are you trying to get? You know, there was just the assumption, if you're taking seminary class, it must be some kind of job that I need that degree for to be able to do. And of course, it's never been about that. Um, It's been about learning. Mm. And I have to admit, I have to remind myself of that sometimes when I take classes, especially when I'm coming up to like writing a paper for or taking a test on a class, because (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to admit this here. All right, so you know I'm getting ready to take for class, take a test for a class, and maybe I know professors. Like if I ever take a class from one of your professors, you just need to know this: that when it comes time for me to take a test, or write a paper. I get so uptight about it because I'm pretty much sure I'm about to be revealed as a total fraud. Like I, <laughs> like I talk like I know some stuff and then you're about to find out when I take this test that I don't really know and own it. And so I have to just constantly remind myself, okay, this is about learning and studying for this test is about learning and taking the test is about learning. It's not about proving anything to anyone. So- Anyway, that's my little self-talk prior to test.
0: Nancy, you, you do need to know that your professors have the same fear of being exposed as frauds. So it's a mutual, it's a mutual relationship.
1: That's what my pastor Nate told me when I told him <laughs> that. So women who are training and preparing to serve in the church or to teach the Bible sometimes have questions about where that's going to fit in, in or around the church. For young single women, there's also the question of, if I get married, how's this gonna work? What's that going to look like? I think it helps us to have models of different paths that women have taken. And, and that helps us to be more creative, imagine possibilities. This, this, I was reminded of this when I heard you and your husband, David, on the final uh, episode, the closing episode for now, of Help Me Teach the Bible and uh, just what a neat partnership you have. I wonder if you could share a little bit about your ministry journey uh, as a, including as a couple. Uh, just so we could have that as, as, a, um, as a way that's out there, an example of how to encourage young women, how to encourage others in ministry.
4: It's a hard question, isn't it? for women? I'm sure you at all of your the RTS seminaries deal with this. Women are investing in an education and then wondering if there's going to be a paid job out there for them, especially if they're, they're single. And um, honestly, women ask me that all that all the time. I just don't have a really good answer. For that uh, right now in the church, but I do encourage them that I am quite confident their education will not go to, a wa- go to waste and that they will never regret having a deeper understanding of God's word and being equipped to be able to give it out to others, that there is an economy to that uh, in terms of the way God can and I'm confident will use it that uh, doesn't quite fit our our um, paradigm, our our understanding of how an economy works. Mm-hmm. Um, I, maybe that's not very helpful to them, but I, in terms of, of my ministry, yeah, I think, you know, my love for the Bible, my understanding of the Bible certainly was significant for me working in Christian publishing, my understanding of things like Christian history and denominations and various beliefs and what type of groups believe certain things. I mean, that was always helpful to me uh, working in Christian publishing for a lot of years. Uh, My husband, David, and I, uh, we have a son, Matt, who's 30. We have two children who have died. And out of that has come both a writing ministry, but as well as a retreat ministry. My husband and I hold weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. And you know, you asking the question that way, Jennifer. Honestly, uh, doing those retreats was part of a way to have a ministry together. You know, I was I was out there talking about this experience of the loss of my children and teaching the Bible, and I wanted there to be some things that David and I do together out of this. Uh, and and the way it came about, we went out to dinner with a couple lost a child. They had she had read one of my books, and they were coming through Nashville. We had dinner with them. And driving home, David and I realized, you know what, there's a big difference between just a mom with a mom and a dad with a dad and a couple with a couple, Mm -hmm. talking about this grief. And Mm. so maybe we could we start a retreat just for couples who have lost children. And I, I remember that very first retreat, us sitting up in front, you know, we've got we're surrounded in a group of 12 Couples who've lost children, and just getting it to one point at the retreat, and saying to David, "We were made for this," and by that I mean our complementary gifts. I mean we're we're both good at leading a you know a, a discussion, at discerning what's going on with people, and you know I do more of the teaching at that. Um, David provides some, you know, the fact that he's a guy's guy. And yet he's there talking about his sorrow and emotions and anger and all of those kinds of things. I mean, guys who think who are coming to a retreat for grieving parents and are terrified, it's going to be like a sweat lodge kind of experience. And they get there and David's just a normal guy, you know, and that we're able to talk about these things and we present our story and talk about it. I mean, that's a huge ministry to them. And um, so we love getting to, to do that together, I need him, uh, and the, the unique things he brings to that, and he needs me for the unique skills that I bring to that but there 's also you know as we you know we 've tried to expand that and try to train some other couples to offer these because there have been times when there 's been more demand for it than we could do because we got up to doing like four or five of these uh, weekends a year, and that 's hard for a number of reasons it 's pretty challenging to find a couple who both who have a unique blending of gifts to be able to lead that. And so we're that God made us. Uh, You know, in this era of COVID, boy, have we been partners, um, because I've been offering my biblical theology workshops online, and I just, you know, there's a lot of technical stuff to that, and so, you know, this last Saturday, I offered a biblical theology tutorial on three themes, and so, you know, we were here from 7 a.m. in the morning until noon when I finished that, and the afternoon before setting up, and so it is fun to uh, have a partner in ministry, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the way that my husband partners with me, believes in me, supports me, and yeah, let me just say, mm. I, I, I'm gonna assume that most of the listeners to this podcast are men. Maybe that's not fair, but I'm gonna assume they are. And I just, nobody's opinion about what I do matters to me, like David's. Mm. You hold a lot of power in your hands. You know, I teach a a summer Bible study at my church and David usually comes and runs the sound, you know, and we get in the car afterward and, you know, what he says to me (laughs) or doesn't say to me, it matters. I I suppose it's the same for you. Do you feel that way about what your wife says about your sermon on Sundays? Is is it the same? I mean, just it has a lot of power, right? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
4: So anyway, I'm grateful for a partner in life and ministry in David. That's well,
1: sure. we're we're thankful for your your ministry and your partnership in that ministry, the marriage and family. It's just such an example to us. And um, I just want to ask a final question for me on the uh, the the book that you have oh, yeah. your new book, uh, God Does His Best Work with Empty, and that has uh, I think you've particularly um, a lot of your ministry has centered on. Uh, emptiness with regard to to family out of the story that you've shared with us. And um, that can sometimes be reflected in marriage and the, the absence of marriage singleness. I know these, this cluster of, Um, the sense of emptiness around the family has particularly been a part of what you've done. I wonder if you could just give us a taste of your new book and maybe particularly thinking about that aspect of it.
4: Certainly. Well, hopefully it won't surprise you that it's really a biblical theology of the theme (laughs) of fullness and emptiness. Um, But, you know, maybe you'll appreciate this. I I, I should have taken my own advice that I've talked about here, where I talked about, you know, beginning by tracing the theme from beginning to end. And I kind of did that uh, before writing the book. But a a few weeks ago, I gave a talk, a short talk, just on the theme of emptiness. Once I sat down and did the work to write out beginning to end, I, I thought of all kinds of things I should have included in the book like uh, just beginning with the fact that before the in the beginning, that God was full. I didn't have that in the book. Um, so add it in, just write it in there somewhere if you have the book. But um, that, that's really where the story begins. It doesn't begin just with the emptiness creation in Genesis 1-2, that God created the heavens and the earth and it was formless and void. Uh, it begins before that with the fullness of God, all of his characteristics, In fullness, he doesn't just have mercy, he's abundant in mercy, right? He's full. And out of that, he creates the world. But really the book, I, I trace this theme of emptiness and fullness Looking at like, for example, the children of Israel, their empty stomachs in the wilderness and how God fills those with the manna, but he's doing it to, to teach them and to train them, he says. Uh, he, specifically, he wants them to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The, this, this metaphor of water throughout the Bible, that God keeps opening up a well of water. And then we come to the woman at the well, and she's so uh, thirsty, for meaningful relationship that she can't seem to find. And, and of course, Jesus is the, he says, I'm the only one who can fill you up. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. Uh, emptiness in the story of Ruth. It's very profound there, you know, because she actually uses the word. You remember Naomi does. I went away full, but I came back empty. And then we see her arms full at the end of that story. But look at the prophet Habakkuk as he looks into the future. I think, and I think this is the most apropos perhaps for us right now with COVID-19 as people are facing so much emptiness in terms of financial emptiness Um, and you know, the prophet Habakkuk, he, he looks into the future. He sees Babylon about to come sweep in, and they're gonna devastate not just the country around him, probably his own farm, his own holdings, his own family. And he shows us how to face an uncertain future with faith. He says, you know, even if there's no olive on the branch, you know, there's no fruit on the vine, there's no cattle in the stall, all these things, he says, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And, and basically, he's the one who gives me sure footing, he's the one who provides security in my life. Um, so, Hab- Ecclesiastes, meaninglessness. I mean, anybody else struggled with boredom and meaninglessness during COVID 19? I think it's a, it's a good word for us. Um, but ultimately, the, the good news of the gospel is that when we get to the New Testament, we see that Christ fills, the, first of all, in him, all the fullness of the, of deity dwells, and that he came to fill us. John, especially, he says he, um, that he was full of grace and truth. And that he is filling us with grace upon grace. And that's the good news of the gospel, according to the theme of
0: emptiness. I love that. And I love the idea of emptiness finding its meaning in Christ, right? It's not just, this isn't just some kind of like self-denialism or something like that, but it's founded in the person of Christ who himself emptied himself, right? He emptied himself, Philippians. Two seven, you know, so that he might fill us. And he, he who was rich yeah, became that's a, poor. That's Absolutely. beautiful. That that really speaks. Thank you for that. Hi Nancy,
6: thanks for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, you're such a gift to the church. I, I love everything you've written because uh, you have a wonderful way of making deep theology and Bible intelligible. I had a. Um, sort of a fun question to ask. I'm sorry. Fun it's not for a, you or for me? I think it's fun for everybody. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask what it's like to be famous. but <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just, you know, it, you know, it was just me, but you sort of answered it when you said, um, and I loved your, what your implied answer, you know, what your husband uh, says, probably weighs so much more, but I guess, you know, you do have an influence, you know, and um, just... uh, That's a better
4: word, by the way.
6: (laughs) But um, yeah, I just wonder, you know, what it's sort of like, because very few, you know, people, when they start their careers, think, hey, you know, I'm going to be famous. But obviously, you do have a large influence. And what has that experience been like for you?
4: Well, it's interesting to me that you perceive me that way, because I don't really perceive myself that way quite so much. Maybe I have a large influence in a very small world. Let's put it that way, right? I remember, first of all, we're all products of so much various experience in our lives, right? And early on in our lives, we don't know how God is going to use things in our lives. Um, But I can, at 58 now, you know, I can look back at my life and see how God has brought so many experiences into my life that he now uses so for example i as i said i got a job right out of college and working in christian publishing so i was working with the biggest names of christian authors and writers you know at 21 and i got an up close view and you know the publishing company that i worked for you know dominated the bestseller list so it was all the big names and i saw up close and I learned a lot from both negative and positive examples. I saw them struggle with ego and money, and integrity, and sexual things, and I got an up close view to see how they deal with that, and I, and I learned a lot. And. I remember when my first book was getting ready to come out in 2002, my book, Holding On to Hope. And one thing i had always observed working with authors is that none of them were ever satisfied. They all felt like, you know, the book cover wasn't good enough. The promotion wasn't enough. They didn't sell enough. It wasn't available enough. I mean, they were always unsatisfied. And I remember the book was just about to come out. And I was like, I need to define what success is going to look like for me. In this because I don't want to be that person and I remember I wrote down several things I hope I can remember what they are now Um, I remember saying okay this was the time when remember there used to be Christian bookstores everywhere this was, you know how old this was but yeah I just remember thinking okay one success is going to be that I might hear from a few Christian bookstore owners that they want to keep a copy or two in stock for when a hurting person comes into their store to, to recommend the book and the other thing was um, I wanted to be able to see genuine, lasting spiritual fruit come out of people who read the book. And the third thing was going to be that I would be pleasing to God in the things in regard to it that nobody else would see, but that I would have a sense that I was serving others in the way that nobody else could see. And, and what's been amazing, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would have a Christian bookseller come up to me and they would like use those exact words. Mm-hmm. I keep a couple of copies on hand because I want to have them for hurting people walking. And when they said that, they had no idea, of course, what that meant to me. And of course, I have seen so much fruit from things like that that I've written. Genuine, lasting spiritual fruit for, for which I am grateful And then in regard to integrity behind the scenes, you know, it's a spotty record. Sometimes I've done really well and other times I haven't. You know, what that most often looks like for me is a hurting person who contacts me and they've got a messy problem and they want a piece of me. And, you know, and in terms of the kind of time I can invest in interacting them. I think it, it, yeah, it looks like walks in the park with young women who are trying to figure out what studying the Bible might look like and and teaching it. Um, Those kinds of things. So getting back to your question, what's it like to have influence? Um, All of my life is about being a steward. All of our lives are, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, that, that parable of the talents is so fascinating because the master, he invests different The passage is kind of about amounts, but I think it's all sorts of resources to the servants, and he just has one expectation, that there would be a return for his kingdom. Hmm. And I tell you what, when I was actually trying to decide whether or not to write my first book, and I was at a Bible study about that, and that, that recognition... That it's all about a return for his kingdom, not mine. That really challenged me, but it also motivated me. It freed me up uh, to do some things that I was afraid I might be exploiting this story of the death of my daughter for myself. And, and when I saw, oh, it's all about a return for his kingdom, mm. not mine. And that I, didn't, I, I haven't gotten to choose what he's entrusted to me to be a steward of he's entrusted to me some wonderful things and he's entrusted to me some really hard things that I wouldn't have asked for. But the aim of my life, I think the aim of a person on this call and every person who's listening to this podcast, the aim of our life is to say what has God entrusted to me and how am I doing investing it for a return for his kingdom? Because a day of accountability is coming. And I want him to say, well done.
0: Thank you, Nancy. Your testimony has been such a benefit to us. Thank you. I, I have just thoroughly enjoyed recommending and pointing people to your work, your written work, to the podcasts, uh, Help Me Teach the Bible. I think it's been a wonderful resource for lay teachers. And actually, to be honest, for many, uh, many expert teachers as well, um, to brush up on on their biblical theology. But, It has just been such a gift to have this conversation with you. And I want to point everyone listening to the podcast to Nancy's latest book, God Does His Best Work with Empty, uh, a biblical theology of emptiness, we might say, if if we were going to add a subtitle to that. Um, But go check that out. And uh, Nancy, it's just been such a wonderful gift to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Well, I'm honored to be with all of you, and you can pay me back by giving me an A when I take one of your
0: classes. (laughs) We'll do. We'll do. It's that easy, actually. You just have to ask. That's the RTS secret. um, So it's great to have you, and great to have you at RTS as a part of our learning community as well. And for everyone else, uh, we look forward to being with you again. Until then, take care. I love that i love i love this i'm looking forward to i've gone through what i have on the uh the quick view on amazon of your book and i i can't wait to read the whole thing um but i love that idea of emptiness and developing that that's a perfect application of the biblical theological method in a way that has a clear practical clear practical implication for the christian life amen so so i hope
4: so you know my, my big goal honestly with that was like Like, have you ever, do you ever go to Costco or Sam's and see their section of Christian books? And, you know, it's Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer, right? And so it's all this practical psychology, relational sociology kind of stuff, you know, as the Christian section. And I was like, could I write something that sits next to there that seems to address felt needs? And yet the answer is not Here's what you have to do. Here's not wise strategies for living, but the answer is Christ yeah. and embracing him in his death and resurrection. And so um, I don't have any notions necessarily. It's going to end up there on, on the shelf, but that was just the thinking in the back of my head, just recognizing that it kind of, maybe it it gets to Peter's question you know, about the practical nature Mm -hmm. of biblical theology and the sense that many people don't get practical with it. And it was kind of a challenge to me Mm -hmm. to present Christ and yet get practical about needs like loneliness and relational difficulty and fear about the future and all of those things. But um, that was my goal. It was kind of stretching to me.
3: The cover is great. I mean- It's a good cover. It would sit really well next to some (laughs) some of those books because it's pretty while also being- you know, like meaningfully the opposite of some of those books.
4: Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens.